Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. On this week's episode, I'm excited to have Scott Baronado join me. Scott is the senior editor at the Harvard Business Review. He's also author of the book, Good Charts, the HBR guide to making smarter, more persuasive data visualizations. And he also has a new book coming out that's sort of the workbook version of Good Charts. So um, it's a very interesting conversation uh, talking about all things data visualization related and the process by which uh, he thinks that we should uh, create good visualizations. Um, Also, before we get into the show, I'd just like to ask you to consider becoming a supporter of the show. I have a Patreon page set up. Uh, The money through Patreon goes to help buy better audio equipment, better sound editing services and transcription services. Um, If you've been watching the show or listening to the show for the last couple of months, you'll notice that I've been adding transcriptions of each of the episodes uh, for folks who may need them or want them for their own work. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode. I hope you're having a great end of the year. Happy holidays to you and yours. And so on to the show. Scott, hey, how are you? Welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks a lot, John. Uh, Happy to be here. This is exciting for me. Oh, great. Well, I'm I'm glad we're able to uh, finally get this uh, chat together. Um, I'm excited to talk about the book and all of your recommendations. And I want to hear about this uh, new project you have that's coming out, I think, shortly. But let's start by having you maybe uh, talk a little bit about you, yourself, your background, and how you ended up as an editor over at HBR. Sure. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm a senior editor over here, which means I do a little bit of everything. And, I, and I'm a bit of a of free agent. You know, a lot of people specialize in the web or the magazine, but I do a little bit for every platform. Editors at HBR are a little different than other places um, in that we do a lot of um, author management. You know, we have academic authors who are have great ideas, but maybe not aren't the best writers or or uh, can't really put their thoughts together in a way for a lay audience. And so we really help them do that. And uh, I, I do that for a lot of topics, not just visualization and data science, but also um, I, I like to specialize in neuroscience and some other sort of what I would call more visceral topics than strategy and, and the softer leadership, those softer things. I like the, the real sort of hardcore scientific ones. I do a lot on office space. How do you coordinate office space? I think it's all part of my sort of visual approach to thinking um, mm-hmm. that uh, the topics I'm attracted to have a real spatial and visual sort of uh, aspect to them. So it's a lot of time editing, writing, thinking about new ways to, uh, to express stories for the audience, which in media is all we ever think about now. Um, (laughs) And, and it's a lot of fun and I get to do a lot of chart making uh, as part of this because I'm an editor who's known here for sort of making the designers lives miserable by always trying to add a visual element or add some kind of visual storytelling to my articles, (laughs) um, which sort of breaks their templates and things. But I think it's really important. Now, are you an editor by, by training, by background? Yeah, so uh, I started out as a journalist, uh, mm-hmm. Medill School of Journalism in Northwestern after undergraduate Wisconsin. Um, dove right into the tech journalism scene at a, a magazine newspaper called PC Week at the time, um, right at the front end of the dot com boom, which was fun. Um, and I got to cover a lot of a lot of the craziness at that time. I got to cover the Microsoft trial, uh, so on and so forth. And then I sort of got yeah. into feature writing. Um, really started writing more features about the people in technology, security, cybersecurity, things like that. Um, and at some point, I decided I wanted to see how HBR, which maybe is sort of the oldest of old media brands, right? It's, it's almost yeah. 100, 100 years old, how they were thinking about the future of media. And I, I just saw it as a great uh, opportunity to 
be part of a transformation of a brand like that. And that's, uh, I joined here about 10 years ago and been working on that ever since. Nice. Now you said a couple of things I want to make sure I catch before we move on. So first off, are you a badger? Is that what you said? I am. Go Badgers. Yeah, nice. are you, are you yeah badger? I am. I am. Oh, We're both Badgers. Um, no, um, it's like the best episode ever. <laughs> That's um, right. I was just back there. I was back for the uh, for the opening game this uh, this oh, year. Good. Taking my yeah. daughter to visit the campus and I was hoping she'd love it, but I don't think she's going to go there, alas. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, I keep I keep pushing my my kids are several years away from that, but I keep gently just planting the seed of of Wisconsin is the, is the place to go. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. <laughs> the other thing you mentioned was on the chart making and I'm I'm curious um what the process is like um for you and for HBR is there you know do you have a, a certain suite of tools that are used for the actual publication both online and print or is it whatever works for you personally you just make something that you know works for the for the publication yeah, uh, for a while, it was really the Wild West. It was whatever I could get my hands on and when I could do it. And I'd present them with something reasonable. And then the design team would pull it into Illustrator and make it beautiful. Um, and, th- and that was our workflow for a long time. Not very efficient. Um, yeah. you know, Effective in sort of the kind of hacking it kind of mentality. But we knew we had to get better. We now have a full-time information designer uh, who works with us who's great. Um, and we use a, a combination of tools, really depending on the, the types of visualizations we need to do. But we also have some very strong templates um, in Illustrator, especially for print, where we're pulling data in um, from tools like Plotly, Tableau, others, um, just exporting the SVGs and then designing them up into those templates uh, into our house style uh, in Illustrator, which seems sort of old school, but it's actually still the best way. I've really it's interesting. I'm sure you've come across this, but the tools question is always the question I get first, right? When I'm yeah, speaking yeah. and what tools do you use? And the truth is there's no one tool that does everything well. And the tools that do more things well require more training. And and it's I wish I could just say, use X tool and that will solve all your problems. Right. Uh, right. But it's not. So we do a little bit of everything. We do some high charts. Uh, I, I like to dabble in D3. I'm a, not a programmer by any means, but I do love using D3. I love the the concept and, and how powerful it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I use Plotly online a lot. So I, I use a lot of different tools so long as I can export SVG. Um, and then we sort of design it up in Illustrator. Right. Now, what about the the authors? Are they, I mean, the HBR has a suite of authors. So yeah. are they creating things or are they pretty much saying, here's the data, you know, here's the screenshot from my journal article that looks terrible. You go make something that looks good. Generally, it's the latter. I mean, they usually have uh, good good ideas, but um, really, um, and none of them, I think, would be surprised at this sort of academic execution is what I'd call it. I don't like to do sort of like good or bad. I'm always about like people are trying, but, you know, some things just don't reach a general audience the way they could. So some of the academic charts are, are really challenging, but they always have good data. So we always have a good starting point um, uh, that way. And and a lot of it is us taking their data and then having a conversation with them about what it is they're really trying to show, taking it away, doing something to it, showing to them, and then refining with them. There, there, there's a lot of that. Now, I will say on the conceptual visualizations, which are pretty common in HBR too, you know, your your virtuous cycles, your two-by-two two matrices, uh, those kinds of things, um, they tend to fall in love with their conceptual diagrams, even if they're not particularly effective. Um, and that's always a harder conversation to have, you know. Um, and I'm sure you've come across this. Some some of the conceptual diagrams out there are 
are strange and bizarre. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The funnel diagrams and the, yeah, the, the, funnels, the 3D the, funnels. Yeah. The, the pyramids that are actually 3D pyramids with camels walking in front of them and things like right, that. Right. Yeah, yeah. We just saw one. It was a 3D pyramid with a city skyline behind it. And we, we couldn't <laughs> figure out what the city skyline represented. It turns out it was just decoration. And of course. So of course. We, we get a lot of that. <laughs> But you have authors who are at least, I would, I would guess, they're sort of a selected group, right? Like they are writing for, for HBR to reach a wider audience. So I would guess that their mindset is, let's make this as appealing to a broader audience as possible. Is that right? Usually. Uh, yeah, I think usually. Sometimes some authors are so enamored of their data and so enamored of showing all of the data they collect um, that they have a hard time sort of editing. You know, they just want to show everything all at once. Um, and they think this is, I have to show everything. And, and we've, we've come across this, you know, a few times where authors just insist and we have to have these sort of really hard conversations with them about how, what they're trying to show is actually not coming through. People are just seeing this sort of mess of bars or lines and, and it's actually not effective in the way they think it's effective. They understand it because they collected the data. They've thought about the data. They know the data, but the, the audience is never going to understand that. So every once in a while we have those hard conversations, but for the most part, I think they, the, the authors really welcome the opportunity, um, to have this, this sort of transformation happen. I just right. had this experience with an author from Northwestern who was doing some really interesting stuff with network communications and net, network diagrams, sort of force directed graphs. And he really welcomed my input and we really worked back and forth and we turned something that came out of his, you know, statistical package that looked reasonably, difficult to parse into something really simple and clear and, and understandable. And he was just thrilled with, with the end result. So that's usually the, the way it happens. Right. So that process leads, of course, to your book um, that came out, I think, a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, Good Charts. So I would guess that the lessons you talk about in the book are the ones that you are sort of applying to the authors that you were working with on a, on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. And I use the process. I actually lay out a framework in the book for a, a way to get better at doing charts in a couple of hours. Um, the whole point of the book, the whole idea behind the book at the time was um, that we needed a guide for people who were intimidated, who felt sort of put off by the, what I would call the actual judginess of the charting community, um, who felt um, sort of the oppressiveness of rules and understanding when you can never do this or always do that or colors to use. And we're so stressed about the grammar of charts that they weren't getting anywhere. You know, they, they just decided, you know what, I'm just going to click the button in Excel and paste it into my presentation. That's good enough because this mm. is, this world is hard. So we were trying to put our armor on the reader and we have a framework in there that says, if you just do these steps in a couple of hours, you'll have something better uh, than where you started. And I still use that process and I'm still sometimes surprised at how well it works. Um, but the whole point of the book is not so much to say, always do this, never do this. Th these are the rules. It's to say the right chart always depends on the context. And so we take a design thinking approach. First, you have to ask yourself, what, what am I trying to say? Who am I going to say to? And where am I going to say it? If you don't do that before you make your chart, you're sort of dead in the water to begin with. And once you understand that and feel that and understand why that matters, I think people start to get to better output uh, pretty quickly. Yeah. So what do you think is the biggest challenge for the sort of folks that you work with who have a lot of data? I mean, it sounds like they're working with data, they're able to make charts. What is the challenge? What's the roadblock that keeps them from taking the chart that they make in Stata or SAS or R or whatever it is and making yeah. it something that 
you would be happy with publishing on the HBR platforms? I would say two things. The first is time. It's always time, right? Yeah. Uh, they yeah. just, they need more time to do this. And this does take a little bit of time. I can't lie and say, oh, you can make it happen just as fast as you're doing it now uh, and have better output. That's not the case. But I think also, and I'm writing a feature for HBR about this right now, which will come out in January. Um, I think something's happened um, where the notion that the people wrangling the data and parsing the data and analyzing the data are the same people who should be visualizing the data um, and I always advocate, uh, I call it the unicorn problem because, you know, these, these companies invested billions in, in getting data science operations set up and they have invested very little on what I call the last mile, you know, which is mm -hmm. the communication part of it, right? They find all these insights and then they can't tell the bosses what they're finding because they can't communicate well. Right. Um, and so I always say a team approach is much better and that you have to sort of amass different talents for different tasks and put those together on teams. And it's not a throw the stuff over the wall and let the designer fix it kind of thing. It's literally sitting together and working as a team. Um, and that this team-based approach was lost, uh, I would say, in the early 80s. And in fact, I have some old books. I don't know if you're familiar with them. There's one from uh, 1912 by Willard Brinton called Graphic Methods for Presenting Facts. Mm -hmm. You know that book by any chance? Yeah. It's yeah. fantastic, right? And yeah. in that book, it's just sort of a, well, here's your team and, you know, the, you have your draftsmen and you have your, your data entry people and all of this. And, and then even in the 50s and 60s, this woman who worked in uh, the U.S. government, Mary Eleanor Spear, she was a great um, chart maker and a great advocate for visualization. She, in her book, said, well, here's your team. These are the three people on it. And, and the idea was it was just assumed this was a team effort, right? But right. then... Uh, then Excel happened <laughs> and Chart Wizard <laughs> happened, right? <laughs> and and you get Chart Wizard and it's like, wait, I can just click on a button and I get a chart and it can, I can make it 3D and put a glass box around it. And this is incredible. And that kind of convenience trumped the notion that, you know, we can have better output if we think a little bit about what we're trying to show and get a few people together to put that out there. And I think we're getting to the point now where it's so important to communicate visually again that um, that's no longer good enough and that we have to start putting these teams back together. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the the tools earlier and there's no tool that does everything. I actually, you know, don't want there to be that tool that does everything right. because I want there to be these specialization of skills where you've got, you know, the graphic designer does what the graphic designer does really well and the and the data person does what the data person does really well. And these groups sort of overlap, at least in their appreciation of what what these other groups could do but one like the the lord of the rings tool to rule yeah. them all is, yeah. is sort of makes me a little bit nervous yeah I, I think that's right i think i agree with you and and i i wish it was a little more organized world you know it's it's hard to, yeah. to, to get, when you have no experience with it to get the experience to know which tools to go to when for sure but also i think it's a lot of times I, I mentioned this team approach and and like you were saying you know there's the graphic design tools and, and the statistical tools it's a, a lot of throwing things over the wall, right? The, the data science yeah. team will come up with something and, and they'll output it in ggplot or R or Python, whatever. And, and they'll throw it over the walls to say, designers, you know, make this pretty, which is not the right approach at all. And I really also advocate for designers taking some stats classes and, and some stats folks taking a couple design classes. And I'm not saying become an expert in these fields, but at least develop a fundamental appreciation for what they're doing and how they're doing it, why they're doing it. Yeah. And I've seen that when designers take stats classes, especially they come to understand some of the challenges that they have to tackle of like uncertainty and, and other concepts that we're dealing with here. And then when the, the, the statistical folks take a design class, then 
they can sort of let go of their fear that simple is bad or simple is hiding things or simple is manipulative, which I think is oftentimes their fear that something that's pretty and beautiful and clear and simple is not holistic or objective, mm-hmm. you know? Right. I mean, I love also for, for data and stats people to understand that design is not making things pretty, right? Yes. It's, it's more than that, right? It's Absolutely. moving the content forward and, and it's functional. Absolutely. Um, and, and especially when you get to the sort of the storytelling uh, sort of aspect of it in the presentation aspect, design is actually fixing your audience where you want it fixed, right? It's actually, it's actually moving their attention at your will. And it's, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a really impressive thing if it's done well, it's, it has not very little to do with what I have a design friend who's just absolutely brilliant. And she calls, she calls it the difference between designing and styling, right? Styling is making it pretty and giving it the right colors and all of that. But designing is actually, you know, sort of fixing the experience. Right. You mentioned rules earlier. Yeah. And I wanted to ask, are there any data visualization rules that you think are absolutes in uh, in the practice? It's funny you ask that because somebody just asked me this the other day and I was trying to think <laughs> of one. And the only one I can think that you really can't break ever, ever, ever is to make categorical data continuous, you know, um, mm where you have a line chart connecting things that should be bars or something. I mean, that's just wrong, right? right? It doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. Um, I I don't have a lot of rules where I'd say never, ever do that. I'm not a pie chart vigilant, you know? Mm -hmm. I've had had, um, arguments with people. I uh, have a friend of mine who uh, published a a chart with a truncated y-axis, and somebody tweeted to him he thought it was a thought crime what he had done. (laughs) I thought, that's... (laughs) That's a bit extreme. That's not, I don't think that's true. <laughs> um, yeah. But what the, the rules I like people to think about are the ones where, you know, they're sort of based in visual perception and neuroscience, right? So there are things that you do to the brain when you, when you show it a visual that if you upset the conventions and the heuristics in our brain, you actually make it harder to understand, right? A simple example would be if time goes right to left on your chart, right? It just doesn't make sense to our brains. And we have to stop and think. And anytime we're sort of flouting conventions that way, we're making it harder for people to see the information or the idea um, clearly. Um, There are times when you know somebody's going to spend time with something that it's okay. But in general, if time is going right to left, that's really hard for us. Or some other uh, conventions like that, sort of heuristical conventions that that happen in our brain. Um, Mm -hmm. if, If you did a world map and you put it I'm putting finger quotes up now, upside down, right? So the South Pole right. was at the top. Right. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, you know. <laughs> like in, in, right. in space, north is not up. <laughs> right, right. But our brains are so used to seeing that that you just make it really hard for people to process the information in that visual. So so those are the kinds of rules I think about. But I would never say never do a pie chart. I would never say um, never use blue for women or pink for men or, mm-hmm. or anything like that. You know, I just, I always say if, if you draw me a sketch and it says exactly what it needs to, I'd rather have that than the most professionally designed chart that has the wrong information in it. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're either you're writing, writing yourself or you're working with authors there or others, what's the thing that gets you sort of most excited about communicating data or data visualization, you know, either one. Uh, two things. I, I think um, I always look for what uh, is called, well, some folks call the bliss point. I really am always in seeking the bliss point. Um, and I'll define that for you because it's not a term that's sort of real. <laughs> but a, a guy I know, Kirk Goldsberry, do you know Kirk Goldsberry? 
Yeah, he's a uh, he was at the Kennedy School. He's done basketball viz for a long time. He now works for the San Antonio Spurs. He's a data scientist. Uh, great guy, smart guy. But he calls it bliss points when you create a visualization that is so clear and so directly applicable to the audience that they see it and there's almost sometimes an audible gasp. You know, there's this moment of understanding. And then what settles in after that moment of understanding is it almost feels like it was always true and I always knew it, you know? Um, yeah. and, and when you create charts that just have that instantaneous effect, um, but then can be used, you know, for sort of deeper diving. I'm, I'm always excited by the chance to create a chart that people just get and understand and affects their thinking right away. You know, that, that, that kind of thing. I think that's one thing. Um, the other is, especially, you know, we're working with academics who have very heady ideas, very complex ideas, helping people clarify their thinking visually, even if it's not something that's published, but if we can just sit down and actually sort of maybe draw a map of their ideas or something, I really love to actually work through challenges visually. I love the idea that even if it's something that's just going to sit in my sketch pile, it's something that actually helped me get to the solution I needed. And I do this with my stories all the time when I'm writing. I'll map them out, I'll sketch them, I'll draw shapes that <laughs> represent where I'm going with the story. Um, and sometimes they serve as great guides and the world will never see them, but they helped me uh, get to a point. I'm a real advocate for sketching all of the time and trying to just come up with visual solutions to problems or even using visuals to solve problems. So those, mm -hmm. those are the two things that sort of excite me the most. And then anytime, you know, this is Twitter is a weird and terrible and awful and wonderful place. But anytime public conversations and debates uh, can happen with visuals, uh, I think if it's being done responsibly and thoughtfully, I think it's a really powerful way to have good public discourse. I think it's not only right. necessary, but almost important. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's yeah, really important. Absolutely. These problems we're trying to solve in the world today are so complex and many of them are so difficult to really understand with a critical eye that um, there's the only way to do it is through visuals. And I always look forward to um, really smart kind of uh, debates based on visuals. Right. So let me, I just want to reflect back then on this, the complexity versus the simplicity, a graph that says, oh, I, you know, I get that right away. You know, the, the example of time going right to left is sort of, you know, throws us off a little bit maybe. Yeah. But then there's this balance between sometimes we want to have a graph where people say, oh, I get that right away. You know, that line is going up over time. And other times we want people to sort of get into the visualization, explore it a little bit, maybe take some more time. So how do you think about that that balance? I, I always come back to there's this sort of famous graphic Iraq's bloody toll that, yeah. you know, people sort of show, right? Which is right. The, the deaths in Iraq and the vertical axis is positive deaths, but it's going down or sort of the... Yeah you know, right to your point about the time. Yeah. So, but that one, you know, sort of people get in and they explore it. So I wonder how you think about those two, I guess, competing thoughts when it comes to creating a visual for people. Yeah. And this goes back to that idea of context I talk about in the book all the time over and mm -hmm. over again. Right. So let's start at presentations. You have what, 400 milliseconds or something to get somebody's attention. And the, the biggest mistake I see in presentations is the, they will present the Iraq's bloody toll chart and they'll spend most of their presentation explaining how the chart works rather than, mm -hmm. you know, the ideas in it. And so that's a, that's a case where simplicity rules above all for me. Right. But then mm -hmm. Iraq's, Iraq's bloody toll, uh, on, in a newspaper where I'm sitting down and it's eyes on paper or even eyes on a screen. Right. Um, and I'm having this sort of intimate experience. Yes. I want, uh, more detail, more depth. 
uh, more things to explore, more surprises as I look through it or even play with it and change the variables. Um, I think anytime I know my audience is expert, I want to provide them more depth, more detail. If I'm putting a chart out on Twitter to the world, <laughs> that's sort of your lowest common denominator. And and the more complex, the more complex, you know, the, the less it's actually going to be sort of processed, except for by people who really want to engage with it, which may be fine. But uh, but I, I sort of have these rules of thumb about uh, what is the expertise of the audience? What is the experience? Is it 50 people looking at a screen and me? Um, is it one or two sets of eyes on a piece of paper or on a screen? And I, And I sort of use my sort of intuition about how much detail I can provide then. And even then, I really love it if a chart can both give that initial impression and then allow you to explore it further. I think those are the sort of the most successful charts where you look at it and you get it, but then you want to spend time with it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, I want to uh, give you a chance to talk about your new project as like a follow-up workbook to to Good Charts that's coming out January. Any day now? January. January. Jan- oh, January. Okay, so we have some time yeah, to, to can pre-order all now. prepare ourselves. Yeah, go ahead and pre-order it. That's fine by me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Good Charts Workbook is the follow-up. And and it really comes out of, the, you know, doing lectures and doing uh, workshops with folks. And oftentimes they'd be very inspired and they say, okay, but how do I do this when you're gone? How do I start? Um, and that question sort of prompted the entire workbook. How do I start? And so this is a chance for you to really build your skills by yourself. Um, And what we do is we set it up sort of like a crossword puzzle book where we give you a challenge. We'll show you a chart that may be in good shape. It may be in bad shape. We may just show you a a data set and we'll give you three or four things to do with it. Um, And then a little bit of blank space though, you know, you're going to need extra paper if you scribble like me and sketch like me, I'm just all over the map, but you know, a little bit of sketch space and then we have a discussion. It's not really an answer key because I find the idea that I could give you the right answer sort of, you know, obviously not right because I'm all about context and I don't know your context. I'm giving you some context. Right. So I'm giving you what I, how I solved the problem, but I encourage people to sort of disagree with me and say, I don't like how you solved it. And we'll actually give you an email address where you can send me your solutions to to the challenges. And the challenges in the book are really, you know, there's sort of two levels of them. The first are just to build those basic skills, sort of like a workout, right? So there's a chapter on color and there's a chapter on clarity and there's a chapter on choosing chart types. And these are like your, your you know, lifting weights and, and all of that. And then in the back of the book, we give you the massive challenge where you put all that together and build a presentation based on some data we give you. Um, I'm really hoping people love it. I had a lot of fun writing it, actually. And I know the people who are working on putting it together now, they've had a lot of fun doing the challenges as they're trying to put the book together, too. So we're pretty excited about it. That's great. That's great. Well, um, I'll link to it. I saw it on Amazon uh, when we were talking earlier. So it's it's out there. Folks can pre-order it. Um, and of course, I'll put links to uh, all the things we talked about, including your uh, existing book great. Uh, that people, I think, should definitely, definitely pick out. Um, Scott, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been a, a really great conversation. Uh, really interesting stuff. Thanks a lot. Loved it, John. Thanks so much. And I love your site. Oh, thanks a lot. And um, well, thanks to everyone for tuning into this week's episode. I hope you're enjoying the every other week format this year. It's giving me a little bit of a breather, which is nice. Um, if you have comments or questions or, or thoughts for Scott, please get in touch with uh, comments on the site or on Twitter. Um, and I'll put links to everything that we've talked about uh, in the show notes so you can check out Britain's book and the Iraq bloody toll. And of course, uh, Scott's work over at HBR. So thanks for tuning in. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz podcast. Thanks so much for listening. 